You're listening to Megiddo Radio. Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megiddoradio.com. That's megiddoradio.com. Good evening and welcome everybody. This is Paul Finn with Megiddo Radio for Tuesday, the 21st of September, 2021. Thank you all for tuning in. And on tonight's program, it looks like so far so good on the tech side of things. And hopefully things will go a lot smoother than last week. Um, there was a few glitches last week. I don't know what exactly happened. I think it might have been the internet. I'm not sure. But uh, welcome everybody who's listening live via YouTube. Uh, also, uh, there's a live feed going through Sermon Audio, I believe, and hopefully that will go well this week. Now, this week we're going to be looking at a different topic. I would be hoping to get back to the larger catechism soon, probably next week. And it kind of just depends on what topics come up from week to week. Uh, I came across... I've actually, there's a couple of videos I've come across that would be worth reviewing and critiquing. And one of them is this one I'm going to be doing tonight on, it's from a, a podcast. I don't know if it's a podcast network, but it's, it's a group that I've never heard of before. Gospel Broadcasting Network. It looks like they're part of the Church of Christ. Now I'm going to try and critique the video on its own merits. I've not heard many good things about the Church of Christ. It seems like they trust in, at least most of them that I've come across, anyway, trust in that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. So they end up in problematic teachings like that. But what we're just going to be dealing with the video tonight, which is going to be dealing with them looking at Calvinism. And the podcast in question is called The Authentic Christian Podcast. We'll get into it in a second and we'll look at it because I think it's important that we do deal with these teachings because often the church, without really realizing it, even in confessional churches, over time, without being really... without really thinking about it, they're drifting towards either an Arminian or even worse, some can drift towards Pelagianism, which is another gospel at that point. Um, these things affect the very core of the gospel. Now, look, there are many who are Christians born again and are not Calvinists and they believe that we're saved by grace alone through Christ alone. And praise God, they're inconsistent, okay? Um, praise God for that blessed inconsistency. We, we, we want that. We don't want them to be consistent and believing that it's their decision that gets someone saved. We don't want that, that they are trusting. Now, are some of them doing it? Yeah, no doubt about it. But you can also get, you're also going to get some professing Calvinists who are not born again. So that's a, that's a question for anybody. Um, make your calling election sure, but these teachings, when they arise, I said, are they arising more through the internet? 
different groups are having more of an opportunity to spread their stuff. But anyway, we'll, we'll look into it and they are important, but they're important in how we do it and how we respond to it as well, because um, there are parts of the world which are not very Calvinistic and very anti-Calvinistic, where I originally was from. Um, I'm originally from County Cork in the south of Ireland, and that part of the world is not very Calvinistic. Where I'm currently living in Northern Ireland is most, from what I can see, a lot of people that I meet are pro the doctrines of grace. So, depends where you are in the world, depends what part of the world you're living in, but it's important, regardless of what we hold or not, that we, we know what these things teach. Not because we want to have our tulip off or anything like that, but so that these things are part of Reformed theology. They originally came about through errors, which came about through the Remonstrance, a movement inspired by Jacob Arminius. And they were a response, to the, the, the Synod of Dort was a response to those errors. And it would be good to read the Synod of Dort. Um, I think that the problem today with a lot of Calvinists, they've, today, modern Calvinists, is it's just bare bones tulip and that's it. And they think that's all that there is to reform theology when it isn't. It's just a part of Reformed theology. Now, before we get into that, we're going to continue our reading through the Psalms. And I'm also going to play, if this all works out, a, a psalm. And I'm going to play some of the psalm for singing again, because I do this because a lot of people have never heard the psalms being sung. And I'm going to point you towards it because it's massively important. And if we're going to see Reformation revival, one of the things I believe that we need to see is the worship of God in homes, and churches, of course, in homes that profess and love our Lord, Je Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And singing the Psalms will build you up, will, will encourage you, will bless you in ways that hymns could never. And that's not why we do it. We do it because we're commanded to. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But, the the richness of them, the theology in them. Because so many people have never come across the Psalms being sung. So we're going to look at Psalm 46 and read through Psalm 46 uh, this evening. And we're going to ask for the Lord's blessing before we begin. Heavenly Father, we pray, O Lord, that you would bless all who are listening. And we pray, O Lord, that you would help us all to understand this part of your word. Be blessed as we look at it this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Psalm 46, let us read God's word. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, Though the mountains shake with its swelling, Selah. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. God shall help her 
just at the break of dawn. The nations raged and the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Come and behold the works of the Lord, who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease. To the end of the earth he breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. May the Lord bless his word. Now, just a few comments on this before we listen to the recording of the, of the singing of this part of God's word, especially um, just the first six verses. When we face trouble, and I suspect, and I think it's not too much of a, a jump in logic, that we face, we face difficult times ahead. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And when in trouble, the Lord needs to be, we need to realize that he's a refuge in our strength in those times. A very present help in trouble. And for that to be a reality in our lives, we need to be constantly in the word of God. We need to be meditating upon the word of God. We need to um, give you an illustration about this. If you're ever going to learn a foreign language, even apart from conversations that you have in the language, you need to be thinking in the language to make it part of you. And it's kind of like that as well with the Word of God. If you're a young believer or a believer for many years, whatever the case, we need to be thinking, meditating on the Word of God, even apart from when we're not in church, when we're not praying and everything in between. and Something's going through it. Something about the Word of God making it part of us, a very present help in trouble. And it's very present if we're close to it. If we're not close to it, that's not going to be the reality. The world is full of distractions and other things that wants to take us away from that. Therefore, and if we see this, therefore we will not fear. If you are fearful, if you are full of terror, is it also possible dear believer, that you're not spending as much time as you probably once did in the Word of God. Or you didn't, or, or perhaps, and I, I say perhaps, these are suggestions, it's, maybe you are, but perhaps you are spending less time reading, less time praying, because of worries, because of something you've read on the internet or, you, or the news or whatever is happening. He's got to be close to us and we've got to remember him and know him, know his attributes, know that he's our refuge. When we're in trouble, we run to him. We don't run to the latest statistics from the CDC in the United States or the NHS over here in the UK. This is what is the most important thing. Therefore, we will not fear even though the earth be moved. Oh, but you don't know what's going on. 
even though the earth be moved, if the earth is shaking, and, th and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, even if all that happens, mountains, they don't move. You know, even if all, even if the worst things happened, we will not fear. Though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling, Silah, no matter what happens, we need to remember who God is. Now, let's make a, a few comments as well on the end of the psalm. Now, I, I'm sure you've heard the, the phrase taken out of context, of course, uh, be still and know that I am God. I think it wouldn't be fair to not mention that. And often it's taken to mean be still, I'll be calm, you know, almost kind of in a mystical sense. Um, and look, you can take confidence that God is, God is truly who he says he is in times of trouble, in times of difficulty. But that's not the immediate context. What's happening here? Come and behold the works of the Lord, who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease. He breaks the bowies. You know, he breaks it, cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots of fire. Be still. Know that I am God. It's almost like, I heard it once being described this way. Be quiet. In the midst of a battle. And know that I am God. I will exalt, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And that's the sense in which the verse is used. It's a very powerful verse. It's not just a, uh, just relax along. You know the way it's often presented. It's a very powerful verse, if understood in context. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, and that picture, um, Jehovah Zavaoth, is it, it's a, Almost, you know, when you hear the Lord of hosts or Lord of armies, it can be translated, usually best probably hosts, but it's to do with his strength. You know, you think of a king and you think of the great armies behind him. You know, people say, well, is it armies of Israel? Is it armies of angels or whatever? But that's not really the point. The Lord of great strength. A powerful God is with us. And when you're with a God of great strength, or a king of great strength, should we worry? Not at all. Not at all. The God of Jacob is our refuge, where we go to in times of trouble. I am, I don't know if this is just in my monitors, I'm getting a crackling. Are you getting a crackling? <laughs> in the live feed, uh, anywhere, please let us know if you are. So that is our devotional section for this evening. Um, oh, and I probably, I should have done this at the start of the program because I kind of do this, I get straight into the program and I forget everything else is happening. Um, so now since last Wednesday, I am officially a licentiate, should have done this at the start of the program, a licentiate of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of Ireland. So prior to that, I was a, a student under care of my presbytery in the Southern Presbytery of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of Ireland. And uh, I was licensed to preach the gospel last Wednesday. Wonderful night, uh, truly a blessing, uh, a night 
that I'm sure I'll remember for the rest of my life. Um, so what that means is um, I'm not a pastor just yet. I haven't, you can't be a pastor without sheep and a flock and, and a congregation. The whole thing is that um, the way, uh, thank you, Benjamin, for that. Yeah. Um, so the, the cur- I, I think a lot of people outside of Presbyterianism don't really understand the system because um, generally speaking at licensing, either if you're, in, I've talked to one or two people in the Church of England and, and also people who are, I think Baptists would be, you know, once you're licensed, you're also ordained at the same time. Not exactly sure. Anyway, but the way we do it at least is this. You're licensed by your presbytery, which basically says this. We recognize the call of God in your life. And if that is a true call, it will be confirmed with a congregation calling you. So, for example, you know, that's why you're ordained. I'm not reverend or anything like that up until I am ordained, but, and I have, I've been placed, you know, with a congregation. Um, so, because part of the whole calling is, you know, initially your elders and the presbytery and you get trained and, okay, you pass that stage and pass that stage. Now, God's people also have to recognize the call of God in your life. So pray about that, pray for that, because without that, how would I put it? It's very important that the people of God have a say and be led to the person who's going to be the minister over them. And if a, if a congregation can't come to the point where they say, if you can't find them, like, for example, some people can't find um, a congregation or any congregation anywhere. I know some of the systems are a bit funny in different parts of the world and don't make it the easiest and, um, and all this. Um, but if God has called you, you're, he will make a way for you to get there. And it must be something that's recognized, not just by you or even a few people, but by the word of the church. And the last stage for me, and I hope you keep me in your prayers, is that a congregation sometime next year, Lord willing, will recognize the call of God on my life and will make out a call to me next summer sometime. So that's the last stage, just to fill people in on that, um, because I know I'll be getting a few emails. Um, not a pastor. I have, I'm licensed to preach the gospel by my presbytery. That is wonderful. It's a great privilege of God. Um, but at the same time, not the, the last stage has to be confirmed. There is a step of, which I completely agree with, and it should be there, where a congregation calls the person. There must be, you could say, checks and balances. I say this to anybody who's listening who might be thinking of the ministry as in be willing to get a new answer and be willing to have others examine that claim. I say that for this because if people think I'm cold, I'm cold, I'm cold into the ministry and then a bunch of people are saying you shouldn't do it. It's not that they're necessarily right. But don't just ignore them. It's not wise. It's and and you have to kind of ask yourself what qualities 
Am I showing to people that they think, you know what, he's not pastoral material. Maybe you have to repent in an area, whatever the case may be, but don't ignore it. Don't ignore it. So, Lord willing, that's ahead. Um, and I'm undergraduate placement at the moment in Cullibacket Reformed Presbyterian Church, having a wonderful time there at the moment. And so that's a little update on what's happening in my life. And if you've got any questions, you can just ask me through the various means uh, that there is to contact me. Maybe get a radio at gmail.com is one way you can do that. Okay, so let's get on to our critique of the authentic, finally after 20 minutes, well, it was quite longer introduction to normal, the authentic Christian podcast. So, <laughs> so Benjamin says, I too had a cr critic of your sermon. I would have been much better <laughs> in a, so um, just to explain, if, if anybody's in the chat room and they're reading about my lack of a Mayo accent, um, I don't know if I've got a Cork accent. I'm originally from Cork and I don't have a typical Cork accent. I have a very, very strange accent. I think everybody recognizes that. If, if I'm, I'm from Cork, I'd be, I'd be talking like this now a bit. I probably don't have that accent and I don't even know if I do it properly. But so maybe one day, Benjamin, I will get a Mayo accent. Anyway, so... Uh, Getting on to our critique, finally, um, we're probably we're gonna have to leave. Sadly, apologize. Uh, we're not gonna play Psalm forty six next week. I'll play F Psalm forty seven, Lord willing. Um, promise to do that. But go on to the psalmsung.org if you want to listen to the psalms being sung. Let's get on to that. We've um, so we've a lot to get through. So we'll start playing it here, and I'm gonna comment on it as time goes on. This is the authentic Christian podcast. Uh, season 2, episode 10. It's on Calvinism. That's why we're covering it from the Gospel Gospel Broadcasting Network. Welcome back to the Authentic Christian Podcast. I'm Aaron. This is Scott. This is Tucker. And today we're going to talk about original sin. All right, so thanks for uh, tuning in. This episode, we're going to talk about uh, original sin. Um, some groups would call this total depravity. Um, it's actually a really... Um, as a popular teaching in a lot of churches. A lot of people um, may go to a church that teaches it, and they may not even know. I'm not going to stop it too much. I'm going to try and stop it as little as possible. There are category problems. Don't get your understanding about what the definition of original sin is from this or total depravity from this. Um, if you want something more thorough, I would refer you to other critiques I've done in the past, um, but they don't quite, understand not to be nitpicking or anything but original sin is really you know the, the adam passing um the adam's sin has become the sin of all mankind and and this is one of the most problematic views that i'm going to be covering today that they're that they're that they're looking at it, it's sadly what i believe plagiarism but we'll get onto it that their church teaches it um but you know a lot of times people will say hey They'll send me their church website and say, can you check it out? And there'll be a lot of times where I'm like, do you know your church teaches this? Yeah, it's going to be one of those things where if you know what it is, you're going to hear it. Yeah. If you start to learn about what it is and you are going to one of those congregations, one of those mm -hmm. churches, mm -hmm. you'll start to hear it and you'll know that's what they're teaching. But they'll never come out usually and just say, well, and it, we believe in total hereditary depravity. It depends, too, on the type of church you attend. Because, like, you know, if you go to, like, a really strong Reformed theology or you know, that's Calvinistic, true. That's true. They like, a, you know, Presbyterian or, you know, um, Presby or Reformed Baptist, um, 
you know, you'll, you'll know it and they'll, cause they think it's doctrinal, it's biblical. We don't. And I don't mean that disrespectfully, but that's what we're going to talk about in this episode. Now I want to make this disclaimer. I've talked to a lot of different Calvinists, a lot of, now they, when I say Calvinism, I'm saying Calvinist cause I don't think it's biblical. They would believe it's biblical, which I, I don't. That's why I'll refer to it as Calvinism or reformed theology. I don't mean that disrespect. It's just, I'm trying to identify it. Mm-hmm. I've talked to different people over the years, lots of them that hold the. Okay. I will stop it every now and again. There's a few areas I can let slide. Again, I, I'm not a big fan of making Calvinism and Reformed theology synonymous with each other. They're not. Um, Calvinism, is, Calvinism, the tulip, is part of the overall system of, of doctrine of Reformed theology. It's part of it. It's not the whole totality of it. Okay. Um if you want to say, well, what is Reformed theology? Go, we'll go through, read through the Westminster Confession of Faith. Okay. Different positions. And um, sometimes you're a five-point Calvinist. Sometimes they are four-point Calvinists. Some people tell me they hold the Westminster. This is the point here. There's, you know, there's a lot of people, they're not confessional, and this is the cherry pick. And... Uh, then I'll ask them something from the confession and they will say, well, they disagree. Um, this is taught by a lot of popular, you know, denominational pastors like John MacArthur, James White, um, Jeff Durbin, uh, John Piper. Most of these big names that people see in the world, body... Uh, not one of them denominational. It's probably just a slip of the tongue. All of them are Reformed Baptists. Uh if you're going to if you're going to go with Baptists, um, try and go with guys. Look from the other side. If you want something that's not, this is a particular view of this guy. This is a particular view of this guy. Try and go with somebody who's a 1689 on the Baptist Confession of Faith holder. Why? Because it's um, if you go with Piper and a couple of other people, they're going to have their own views on certain things and certain areas, especially if they're not confessional. Um, just a suggestion. Watch them. All these guys are Calvinists. And it goes back, this is going to be a really um, brief history, to John Calvin in the 1500s, who was highly influenced by Augustine. Um, early, you know, I think he was 4th century, Augustine? 5th century? I don't, I remember. don't yeah, remember the Off the top of my head. So, um, uh, everybody was influenced by Augustine. Everybody was influenced by it. A lot of the church fathers. They would quote from them, and loads of people would, and a lot of the theological debates ended up with all sorts of people being quoted. And hey, Calvin had the truth, and why not quote one of the church fathers they claim is authoritative, or whatever, and show that, hey, he teaches exactly what we teach, and that's kind of... And by the way, he didn't always agree with Augustine. You read through his institutes and you'll see not every single time actually if you read I think it's yeah I can't remember the exact books I think it's book three and book four you know you kind of disagree with him in places he didn't always agree with him he didn't just lift it up and and he did they quote from all sorts of people the 16th century reformers and just because somebody quotes from somebody or is influenced by somebody doesn't mean they just swallow everything they say 
you have to be, you have to realize this whole thing of, oh, he just copied from Augustine is just a bit, it gets tiresome because who, who is he going to be influenced by in the mid 16th century? Who? He doesn't have sermon audio. He doesn't have loads of books. That's all you have. <laughs> That's all. Who else? And one of the best theologians of the first couple of hundred years. Not perfect. Taught error in places, but compared to most. So you have to kind of like be at least a tiny bit gracious. Who is better than Augustine around that time? Oh, but he had this and this error. Who didn't? But, so, if you hear us say, well, Calvinists believe this, obviously there's going to be some that you might be watching and say, well, I'm a Calvinist, but I don't believe that. We're not trying to to, to paint with too broad a brush, but sometimes you have to in this short of time. So, um, yeah. and if you are watching this and you're a Calvinist and you say, hey, look, like, you know, you want to talk to me or talk to us? reach out. Like we, we answer, we will talk to you. Mm -hmm. Um, cause we care about your soul and I hope you care about ours. Um, yeah. you know, we believe everybody has a chance. Whereas Calvinists, we'll sure. talk about this in the second episode, believe that there's elect and unelect and some people don't have a chance. Yeah. Um, so, so let me, let me ask you something. Yeah, you mentioned ahead. some people are four point Calvinists yeah. or five point yeah. Calvinists. What is that? What do you mean? Okay. Good point. So if you were going to say the, the standard tulip, the flower tulip T is for total depravity which is what we're talking about today. U is unconditional election. L is limited atonement. I, irresistible grace. And P, perseverance of the saints. Total depravity, um, I'm going to upset some Calvinists, means Adam, when he sinned, he passed. If, if it's rightly defined, if it's rightly, if you have the right definition of it, you're not going to annoy any of us. Belong to everybody, and everyone is born totally depraved. You cannot do anything but choose, and you love sin. You can't do anything good um, unless God works a miracle on you. The you is unconditional election. Okay. Um, it, it's a bit messy. Is it kind of there? Uh, maybe. Um, the whole total depravity kind of side of it is this. Total in terms of not man is as bad as he could be. That's not what it teaches, and that's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, it's total as in all his faculties, he, his intellect, his heart, his affections, his will is affected by the fall. And to what degree has man been affected by the fall? So much so that he cannot choose because he is a slave to sin what is good. He doesn't want to choose what is good. It's not against his will. He doesn't even want it. Um, an analogy might be this, it'd be like saying to somebody, go drink the milk, and the milk has been in, I don't know, it's been gone off a month. You don't want to, and you, and you're, you're, you fight against that. That's a very limited and simplistic analogy, but you're, you're fighting against it. You don't want that. You suppress the truth and the righteousness. That's what Romans one eighteen says. So that's the whole idea. This total depravity isn't, um the nature to which it affects all your faculties, total inability is kind of related. It's a unable to respond in a saving sense because you're dead in trespass and sins. You're a slave to sin, not against your will. Um, and then you have original sin, which is 
the sin of Adam is imputed to all of mankind, to all represented by him in the Garden of Eden. The second Adam has his righteousness imputed, and he knocked off my microphone, got a bit excited there, imputed to his people by imputation. So the question then is, which Adam are you in? In Adam all die, but in Christ all shall be made alive. Just, just clearing up a little bit, if anybody's confused by that presentation. There. Means, since you can't do anything good, the only way people could come to God is if God chooses people, elect people individual, and says, Scott, I'm going to miraculously send the Holy Spirit to regenerate you. Right. Outside of what they Outside of do. what they could do. Yeah, marriage. they could never do right. it. You know, they say, you know, uh, Romans 3, all these different passages that I think are out of context, but that's what they would quote. So God could say, Tucker, uh, Tucker, you're unelect. You're going to be lost. You didn't do anything um, to get the sin nature, which made you sin, but you're yeah. going to be held accountable even they didn't have a choice in doing anything but choosing sin. Yeah, this sounds like it's been put forward. It's, it's, it's hard to listen to, but... Um, who would have been better to put in the Garden of Eden? You or Adam? Now, remember, Adam was sinless. Holy. Righteous. He was created mutable. He could fall. Mutable means he could change. He had free will, and is it he could choose the evil and could choose the good. But then he sinned. This whole argument, oh, well, you couldn't do anything about it. Well, what would we have? I'm sorry, but this whole self-righteous claptrap of, it's almost like if we were in the position of Adam, we wouldn't have lasted five seconds in the Garden of Eden without sin. In, in the Garden of Eden, basically, the tree of knowledge, good and evil, was a test, you could say, of whether man would love the Lord his God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength and love his neighbor as himself. The totality of the law. And it's almost like, oh, well, this is not fair because, well, how long would you have lasted if you were a representative of all mankind? It is foolish talking like this. It is foolish starting with man and working up. What we need to do is start with the nature of God. He is sovereign. And what glorifies him and what has been revealed in his word. But you're elect. You did the same thing Tucker did. You were totally depraved. You sinned, but God saved you. And so you're going to go to heaven for eternity and you're going to go to hell for eternity, right? So unconditional election means it's election of an individual. That's what they teach, not what we believe. Election of an individual unconditionally. Doesn't matter anything that you did, right? The third one is limited atonement. And what what's the alternative to it? Well, God then is a respecter of persons and thinks that, you know what? That person's better. It's got something to do with what you did. Therefore, I'm going to save this person. Then it's an election of works. And then it, it is... By salvation is then by the will of man. 
which is kind of contrary to John 1, 12 and 13. Much of Romans 9. It's not of him that willeth, but of God. But of God, who showeth mercy. If God simply made salvation possible and just called everybody and said, you know what, you've all got the equal chance. Come, come. No one would come. No one would come. All are called to come to Christ, to trust in him. All who will trust in Christ will be saved. But all who come to Christ only come, not because they were smarter or made a better decision or in any way were better than anyone else, but because the Spirit of God opened their eyes to see the beauty of Christ. That is the only reason anyone will come to Christ. Anybody else sees Christ and does not see anything desirable in Christ. That is human nature. That has been the human nature since the fall of Adam that has affected all of mankind. And since that time, he has been a slave. Since that time, we have seen bloodshed. Look at Cain and Abel. Since that sin. It wasn't just, like the Pelagians say, well, you know, like, just copying his bad example. But Cain was copying the bad example of his father. He was of the wicked one. Abel was trusting in the promise of Genesis 3.15. Means Jesus didn't die for everybody. So they'd say, you know, yeah, well... have to be true if it's unconditional. If it's unconditional right? and God chooses... And there's some lost. Yeah, yeah. and they would say, uh, you know, I would say, well, 1 John 2.2 2 says Jesus was the propitiation for our sins, written to Christians. Mm -hmm. Not only ours, but also the whole world, those that are non-Christians. And they would explain that passage away. But... There's a lot of hopping around. Um, first thing you will say is if Jesus died, if he paid for the sin of every single person, why is there anybody in hell? You see, there's both sides limit the atonement, but it's just a question of how. One side will limit the atonement in terms of power. Reformed theology limits the atonement in terms of scope and who it's intended for. Regardless of how you view the atonement, you're still limited to a certain group of people. Jesus never came and died for angels. I'm not aware of anybody who teaches that. He came and died for the seed of Abraham. All, and by the way, the seed of Abraham is the seed of Christ, and all those who will trust in Christ, that's who he died for. If there was a penalty, why would it have to pay for all eternity? Justice has been satisfied for someone. I mean, couldn't you imagine that thought? I mean, his atonement, his satisfaction for the sins of that group of people is can be switched on and off by human will. This is the problem with, you know, four-point 
so-called four-point Calvinism, whatever, it look, they really all stand or fall together. They really do. And once you realize the nature of men, the rest of them really fall together. But if you bring to the table, man has to have some part to play in salvation, beginning, middle, or end, then that's when these teachings and, and, the, and the core of the gospel is challenged. That it's by grace and by grace alone. Now, I, I don't want to skip away from 1 John 2, 2, but I don't want to spend a lot of time in it purely because of time and all the other things. I Years ago, I dealt with this one. Um, let's look at it, because it is an important text. Ugh. I think purely stopping and starting, this is kind of one of the reasons I didn't want to do this, but I think it's um, for, for those people who might be thrown off by this verse. It says in verse 2, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the, but for also for the whole world. And you have to ask, what are the not for our sins only? The context here seems to be referring to Jews, not just Jews only, but also for the beyond the borders of Israel. By the way, John does speak like this also in in, in John three sixteen. So this isn't just purely unique to this, and it also seems like John wrote his gospel, his three letters, and Revelation quite close together, probably in the 80s AD, and Revelation was probably penned about 95 AD. Um, brethren, he says in in 1 John 2, 7, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment you have from the beginning. The old commandment is which you have heard from the beginning. So there's nothing, who he's speaking to here, it's nothing new. But then it's again a new commandment to write to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So he's writing to a group of people here that are, he's saying, I write no new commandment unto you. So Piers is writing to Jews, not for our sins only, but it goes beyond, and this is the context of the entire scriptures. There are, because otherwise you'd say, well, is it universalism? Is is everybody saved in the world? No. Who is represented on the breastplate of the high priest and brought before God? The people, the children of Israel. And so to tell them, I write no new commandment unto you, which has been given to you from the beginning, seems to suggest that this is probably to a Jewish audience. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for our sins only, but also beyond just our little group. You know, you could be in a church situation preaching this and say, not for our sins only in this area, which we're evangelizing, but also beyond this area. To read anything else into this, because propitiation means something that turns away wrath. It's not something potential. It turns away wrath. And so in a verse like that, you have to think, is justice really satisfied in the atonement when you have a view where God has and somehow paid for the sins of everybody? He satisfied justice, apparently, but 
many, most it seems, many will not taste paradise. So the question is, do we limit the atonement in terms of power? And I say we should not. Or do we limit it in terms of scope? Those for whom it was intended to save. Those who would come to him. I pray not for the world, Jesus said to his father when he prayed. The high priestly prayer in John 17. I pray not for the, for the world. I pray for them whom thou hast given me. John 17, 9. They would say this. They would say if, um, like James White, I hear him say this a lot. I listen to a lot of these guys. It's not like I don't listen to them. Right. Um, but James White would say, if Jesus died for everybody and some people aren't saved, then God is an imperfect savior. And they say God is a perfect savior. He will save every person he died for. I would say that's God is a perfect savior, but the people who aren't saved, it's not because God did anything wrong. It's because they don't choose to be saved. Right. So that's the third point of the tulip. Irresistible grace means when God gives you his grace, you can't resist it. Mm -hmm. So if you guys are both lost, totally depraved, but Scott happens to be elect, God sends him the Holy Spirit. It's irresistible. He can't, he can't do anything but accept it. He'll be regenerated. And then P is perseverance of the saints, which is also called once saved, always saved. Although some people have an issue with the definitions and they say, you know, well, if you are truly elect, you'll persevere. And no, it's not once saved, always saved. Once saved, always saved is really... Um, just to be brief, it's really a more of a fundamentalist doctrine. We are to live holy lives. And if there's no fruit, there's no root. So once saved, always saved is kind of a antinomian. As long as you meant it once, doesn't matter what happens. So there's no real once saved, always saved with it. You may get what some Sandemanians, but no, there's no, nothing to do with Reformed theology. And they, you know, I've got, like I said, I, I know a Baptist pastor named Sam Harris. I don't know him, but mm -hmm. I've read his writing. He said, a depraved sinner cannot do anything without the miraculous operation of the Holy Spirit. Um, lots of these other guys would say that. Um, yeah, I could quote, you know, guys and read, but that would take forever. So sometimes people say, well, I'm a five-point Calvinist. They hold to all these things. <clears throat> and... Um, you have a four point that most of the four points I've talked to don't hold to limited atonement. They wouldn't say Jesus didn't die for, they say Jesus died for everybody. But I mean, I've met three point Calvinists, two point. I've met people who don't even right. claim to be Calvinists, but hold to all or some of the points. Yeah. But wouldn't they, wouldn't they all, and I guess we'll talk about it some yeah. tie back to the first one, the T. Yeah. Okay. Like, wouldn't you have to build True. on that logically yeah, for them to stay valid? Gave you more than you wanted. So total depravity, I would say a lot of, Calvinism hinges on total depravity yeah. because if, if we are totally depraved and we can do nothing but evil, then we couldn't choose God if that was true. But if I'm not totally depraved, if I'm born a, a moral free agent that can make a choice good or bad, and I have free will to choose God and God gave me that ability, then I don't need unconditional election, which I don't believe that's what scripture teaches. When scripture talks about election, it talks about, you know, I think it's uh, in predestination, Ephesians 1, 4, we are predestined in him, in Christ. Well, how do you get into Christ? Galatians 3 says you make a decision to be baptized into Christ, right? right? So I'm not, I'm going to 
you make a decision to be baptized into Christ. It is basically depends on you. Now, yes, there's an instrumental cause. We we rely by faith alone, not baptism. I'm because mainly because of it's the Church of Christ we're dealing with here. But let's look at Ephesians chapter one. Of it, it, very clear, very difficult for an Armenian Pelagian in this case to come here and kind of talk around it. It was just like Ephesians one. Start from verse one. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3 now. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. It's amazing just reading that and the the interpretation has been shoehorned into it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And he's like, well, how'd you get in there? Well, you do this, just this. You might as well say, blessed be us for we have done this to get in here. Verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Verse 5, having predestinated us, this is all to do with God. God is the one who is active. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the, according to the good pleasure of his will. Not according to the good pleasure of the, the sinners being saved. If it was, they would continue on their way to hell. There would be no hope. To the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us acceptable in the beloved. Now, listening to that explanation and the understanding of which you shoehorn in, well, how do you do it? You have to be baptized. And a horrible mishandling of the text because this text, verse 3, verse 4, is talking about what God has done. What God has done. In him we have redemption through the blood for forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, not according to the exercise of our will. Because our efforts... If it's, if it's our efforts, it's not by grace. If the difference is between the lost and the saved, something we do, then it's not of grace. And yes, I talked about how the instrumental cause, the instrumental cause of salvation is faith. Instrumental cause. There is an illustration. This is from R.C. Sproul's book. Um, maybe a few of his books, I'm not sure. but And I think it's from... It's from... It's, it's, not, it's not unique to him. But the whole idea is this. Instrumental cause. If the, the sculptor... You've got the sculptor. You've got the chisel... And you've got 
the the statue. He's working away on the work of art. Okay, so the instrumental cause is faith. The instrument of that work of art or the, the chiseling or whatever is the chisel in the hand of the sculptor. It is an instrument. It is a means by which we lay hold upon salvation. But it is a means that has been given to us because not of us. It is by grace we have been saved through faith. Verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of yourselves. Not of yourselves. But, but, but faith. I, yes, you believed. But salvation is not of yourself. It's not of works as any man should boast. Even the, even the faith to believe is a gift. Because if, you, if it was, if the difference between one person and another person, because one person believed or exercised his will or, or believed or whatever, that that was the difference, well, the difference then, the foundation of salvation, the, the, the deciding factor is the will of man. God has done all he can, but man just does that little last bit. He's done all he can. But do you see the problem with this? Now, in our preaching, if we start talking about are you part of the elect or any of that kind of nonsense, you've drifted off way off into hyper-Calvin. That's not how you preach. You preach, in, you call sinners to repent. You show them their sin. You show them the, the glorious Savior. And you, you compel all of them to come. Because you don't know who is who. You compel them all to come. Knowing that there's a harvest at the end of the world. Knowing that victory is assured. Knowing that salvation has been bought for his people. And they will come infallibly in his time according to his mercy. And knowing that, you continue to work to the praise of, the, of, the, of his glorious grace. God saves. Beginning, middle, and end. And man can take no single ounce of the glory that is due to his name. Rome and other, and the Jesuits and other people during the Reformation, they hated free will. Or not free will, they loved free will, sorry. They hated the doctrines of grace. They weren't called the doctrines of grace by this point, but they hated Rome form theology, the doctrine of election. And sadly, a lot of people who claim to be evangelicals, they also hate these doctrines and fight against it. And we must, um, we must be aware. We must be aware of what Reformed theology teaches, what the Bible teaches, okay, ultimately. The best way to do that is not get a print-off from the internet tulip or even some series. Get a catechism. Westminster Shorter Catechism, something like that. Read it all the way through. Because you need to see it. It's part of a, of a wider whole. 
that is based upon the sovereignty and the glory of God. There's, we could do multiple episodes on this just topic, but that's where if you can, if you can, in my opinion, if you can prove that total depravity is wrong, all of Calvinism is not, it falls apart. It's not necessary because if we can choose God, which I believe scripture teaches we can, then you don't need to be unconditionally elect. Right. And then atonement isn't limited. The only way you could hold that then is to say God is unjust because then you would have to say, yeah. well, I want to do right. I know what God wants me to do, but he doesn't care. And he's yeah. going to send me to hell anyway and save this guy. Who wants to do right? Show me. Who wants to do right? Who keeps the, who keeps the law of God? Are you saying that it's possible for people to keep the law of God? Well, then you don't believe the scriptures, which talks about, especially those people, you know, when Paul talks about the Ephesians and he's talking about them who were saved by grace alone through faith alone. And it talks about them in verse one who were dead in trespass and sins. Those are the people. And once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, who who among them were oh was are there other people trying to do right? Are there some people is it possible, perhaps, if you follow such logic, that a person could live and could keep the whole law? Is it possible? Because You'd have to say, with the Pelagian system, a person's not born a sinner, not born with a sin nature, and it is, if you follow the logic, well, you know, can't force him against you. He can choose the good. Well, he can keep choosing the good then. He's in exactly the same position as Adam. He can keep going. Because Adam was created that way. Adam was created in such a way that he could have possibly continued In Adam all die. Even from that point on, Adam displayed his sin nature. Here, who's choosing to do wrong? Yeah, that's right. You know? And so, <clears throat> I guess let's total hereditary depravity. Total means completely, completely right. corrupted. This is what they what they would teach, not what we believe. Hereditary, we got it from Adam. If you ever hear the term federal head, federal headship, that means Adam sinned, and because of that, we all got that sin passed down to us from Adam. And depraved means we're born evil. Um, Reformed theology, Calvinism, um, mostly Baptist Presbyterian churches, not all of them, but some of them. Yeah, I've heard some of them say you're, you're born God-hating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Just to point out, if you're a Presbyterian church and you're Westminster Confession of Faith, you are Calvinistic. So you, you have all that, and let's look at some of the alleged support passages, right? Um, because I just want to look at some of the ones that, that they will bring up. Um, we're not going to have time to cover all these, but um, Ephesians 2.3 is the, the one we'll go to first. Um, Ephesians 2.3 says, among whom also, this is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, among whom also we, so Paul's including himself and the church in Ephesus, we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh. He says the way we lived, we were living after our lust fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, just like the others. And so they say by nature means that word nature means your natural order, like the way you're born. Right. Um, it can mean that the Greek word sarks, um, flesh. I think that's what by nature, uh, 
I think so. Actually, I could be wrong. Can you look up the Greek word there? Yeah. Sarx means flesh. I don't know that that is Nate. No, it's Phusis. Never mind. You don't have to look it up. It's Phusis. Um, yeah. Saying some, Phusis is the word. Now, sometimes that can mean natural order of birth, but also sometimes it can mean the regular or established order of things, which BDAG is a Greek lexicon that talks about that. So basically it would mean the way you've been living. Like if I said, Joe is just, he's a drunk. That's his nature. I don't mean Joe was born a drunk. I mean that Joe through the course of his actions, the things he chose to do, he became a regular habitual drunk. Right. And I would say that you have to use that definition in certain contexts. Cause if you go to Romans two fourteen, it says for when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, do the things in the law, these, although not having a law, are a law to themselves. So by nature, Gentiles follow God, right? Well, I mean, does that mean that from the time they're born, they, automatic, born, they automatically follow God? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're going to be consistent with your definitions, you have to say that basically they make a choice. Gentiles who don't have the law of Moses can choose to do the things in the law, right? But if you're going to say that word nature always means birth, then Romans 2.14 disproves total depravity right off the bat. Yeah, because they can choose to do, and and they did choose to do certain things, right? Yeah, they did. Right? I mean, yeah. a lot of them took care of their parents, and they did other good things that yeah would have been taught in the law, right? Yeah. You know, moral decisions. They did yeah. immoral things too, but but they could choose that. Yeah. 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 I mean, Tucker, um, you're an Ecclesiastes guy. You know, there's yeah. a passage in Ecclesiastes that talks about God making man what like, seven twenty nine. Ecclesiastes 7.29. Okay, so um, if you're listening to this, you're going to be listening to this on the podcast. So uh, the stream kind of went halfway through, and I think I need to, I don't know, maybe I need to abandon OBS because OBS software seems to be causing me problems. I don't know why. Um, So we're just going to finish off the critique here. I'm going to finish off the program here. Uh, you can listen to this, <laughs> and you don't need to be told this, I guess, um, um, if it is on, um, yeah, I'm going to have to f- figure out how we're going to work through that. So, perhaps we'll continue that next week, I'm not too sure. If there's any questions, megidafilms at gmail.com, or megidaradio at gmail.com, um, there is a need to realize that we need to start with the scriptures. We need to base not on feelings or anything else, but we need to judge it based upon the sovereignty of God. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to finish off here for this program. This will go up on the internet, and um, we will... There is quite a bit left to go, so I'm probably going to come back to this. Not sure exactly what I'm going to do, because, uh, again, this is a bit disappointing with OBS. Uh, seems to be crashing on me with Mac. If anybody's got any ideas what to do with that, let me get a radio gmail.com. So, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there for this, but we will pick it up from about 10 minutes into this video. Uh, the next time the program goes up, we'll see when that happens. It's been Paul Flynn. May God bless you all. <laughs>